Good to be with you this evening. It's always good to be able to preach the Word of God. Appreciate the opportunity. I'm going to do something this evening that uh, we'll see how successful I am. Am I not? Just to see how successful I'll be, you will have to be your judge. I'm going to preach this whole sermon, and I'm going to talk slowly. (laughs) Now, if you believe that, raise your hand. I only had one person raise their hand, but uh, we'll try our best, okay? Let's go to the Father in a word of prayer. Father, we love you and praise you, and thank you, Father, for being our Lord and our God. And pray you'll be with us as we study your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. Amen. You've heard it said, no good deed goes unpunished. Now, that's an overstatement, but it's also true. If you do good, you can expect many times to suffer. If you're the company you're working for, is cheating its customers, and you do good and let the customers know they're being cheated, guess what? You're probably going to suffer because you're probably going to lose your job. And what Peter says in 1 Peter is that don't concern yourself with that, but recognize that as followers of God, as people who are to be expressing the character of God and the character of Christ, then you continue to do good even if that doing good is going to bring suffering into your own life. Now, one reason why we do that, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. One reason why we do that is because if we continue to do good, even when we're being persecuted, if someone at your job sees you continuing to do good and not becoming bitter and not becoming hateful when you're mistreated, then maybe, maybe that will cause them to begin to think about the Lord. Maybe that will cause them to begin to wonder, what is it you have that they don't have that allows you to to escape bitterness and hatred? What is it you have? And, And then maybe then they'll just come to a faith in Christ. Listen to what Peter says now, beginning at verse 11 and reading through verse 12 of 1 Peter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, and that's what we are, we don't take our values from this culture, but from Christ, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. But now listen to verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, if they're going to glorify God on the day of visitation, it follows that Peter's saying they may indeed become believers. And they might become believers because they saw you continuing to do good, even though good was bringing suffering into your life. Now, let's turn to the text that was read in your hearing, 1 Peter 3, beginning at verse 18. And we're looking through verse 22. But first of all, we need to look at verse 17. For it's better to suffer for doing good than it should be, if, it, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I don't want to do evil in my life. You don't want to do evil in your life. I have to make a choice between suffering for doing good or for doing evil. I'll suffer for doing good. But the real 
point here is when we get to verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In other words, Christ suffered for doing good in order that you and I might be saved from our sins. And as Peter's already told us in chapter 2, we are to recognize that we are to be followers of Christ. The way Christ lived would be the way I lived. And if Jesus suffered for doing good, then I too must be willing to suffer for doing good. But bear in mind too what this passage is telling me. For Christ also suffered once for sins. He suffered for my sins. He died for my sins. He died for your sins. He suffered for our sin. He suffered once. He didn't didn't have to make continual sacrifices like the high priest. He suffered one time for our sins that we indeed might be delivered from those sins. But here, here is something we really need to understand. If Christ suffered for sin, in 1 John 3, 5, if Christ came to take away sin, then sin is something horrible. It's something awful. It's something that I shouldn't want anything at all to do with. Because I know that sin grieves God. I know that sin will cause others to lose their souls. Sin is a horrible, awful thing. I hear people sometimes, they talk about sin. And it's like, well, I made a mistake. No, sin's not a mistake. Sin is a willing violation of the will of God. Sin is determining to do something that you know is going to grieve God and grieve Christ, and Christ loved you enough to die for you. Therefore, anytime you sin, you should be on your knees asking God to forgive you, repenting of that sin, and trying to walk in a way that will honor Him because He died on the cross for your benefit. He suffered for sin The righteous for the unrighteous. The reading here should be the righteous one for the unrighteous one. And he did that for a purpose. He did that for a reason. And also, I got to mention the Hebrew chapter, Hebrew verse in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where it says that he was willing to suffer for the joy that was set before him which I think involves our salvation. But we also need to be willing, as the Hebrew, as Peter has already pointed out in 1 Peter chapter 1 about the hope that we have, we need to be understanding that we need to suffer also keeping focus on the joy that is before us in eternity with God. But continuing to look at what he says here, he suffered for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He did that to bring me to God. Now, think about this just for a minute. I'm able to know what God is like, and I'm able to enter into a relationship with God because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross. Now, if I'm able to enter into that relationship with God, and that relationship with God came about as a result of the death of Christ, then it should be my desire, it should be my determination that I'm going to learn everything I can about God. I've been brought to God now. Now I need to learn everything I can 
about God. Now, imagine if you would, if today I, when I married my wife, Nancy, I, I said, you know, I, I, I'm really glad I married you. You're, you're a tremendous woman. Anyone who could put up with me for 42 years has got to be. But you're, you're, you're a tremendous woman. You're, you're, you're a great woman. Uh, and, but you don't, I really don't want to know any more about you than I already know. I'm content just to know you just the way I know you right now. I don't want to learn about your dreams. I don't want to learn about what you want. I don't want to learn anything else. I'm perfectly content to know you just the way I know you right now. You think the marriage was lasted for 42 years? Might not, might not have made a month. It wouldn't have lasted very long at all. And yet sometimes we come to God and that's kind of attitude. Okay, God, I know about you. But wait a minute. You're in a relationship with God. Now you need to learn everything you possibly can about God because Jesus died to bring you to God and we want to know everything we can about him. And we should be studying the Old Testament. We should be studying the New Testament. We should be listening to other people because other people have different experiences than we do. And, and then we can learn more and more about God each and every day of our lives. And that should be what we're trying to do because Jesus indeed brought us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, when you see spirit, the word spirit in your Bibles, there's one or three ways to understand it. You can understand it to be the Holy Spirit, as the NIV, I think, incorrectly does. Or you could understand it to be the human. I did that, didn't I? You can understand it to be the human spirit. Or you can understand it, as I believe it should be understood here, to be referring to the spiritual realm. He was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spiritual realm in which, in other words, at some other time, with that, in that spiritual realm, he went, to, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now this is an extremely difficult passage. I asked Kerry if he was going to get this far in First Peter. He said, no, he'd leave that to me. I wasn't terribly appreciative of it, but anyhow. So how are we to look at who are to the spirits in prison? There are some really, I think, bizarre ways that people have interpreted this verse. One idea is that Jesus, or that Christ, in between death and resurrection, went into the Hadean world and preached the message of victory to the fallen angels. Well now, excuse me, but how would that have been any real encouragement to the people that he's writing to? I, I really just don't understand that. And also, when you look, if you would, look with me to, to verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. God was patiently waiting for these spirits in prison to repent. Nowhere are we ever told that the angels were given the opportunity to repent. This is not a reference to angels. Who then is it a reference to? If you look at it closely, it says to the spirits in prison, they're in prison now. Now they're in the Hadean world awaiting judgment. They weren't there when the message, of, the message was being preached to them. Because what this text is saying, as you continue, because they formally, or, and this could be understood to be when, they formally did not obey when God patient waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. 
what this is telling us then is that Christ in the spiritual realm spoke through Noah to the people who died in the flood who are now in the Hadean world waiting judgment, but as I said earlier, they weren't there when the message was being preached to them, but they're there now, and, and this is the way I think you can best understand this passage, and, and this is the only way this passage is really going to be an encouragement. We'll get to that in just a moment. Let's finish reading it. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. What's the point? Why, why is Peter even bringing up Noah? All right, what are these Christians suffering? They're suffering persecution. They have a whole world that is against them. And maybe they're beginning to think, I just can't make it with, with everybody against me. I, I, I just don't have the strength. I, I, I just don't think I can do it. I, I, I just want to give up. And what is Peter saying? Peter's saying, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Remember Noah? Remember Noah? He had the entire world standing against him when he preached the message. When he made the ark. And by making that ark, we're told in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, that he condemned the world. The world didn't like him. Noah stood against them. And guess what? Noah was rewarded. Noah was blessed as a result of his faith and confidence in God. And therein is the word of encouragement given to these people. Yes, you're going to suffer. Noah suffered. Yes, you're going to suffer. But ultimately, the victory belongs to you because you have trusted and put your faith and your confidence in Jesus Christ the same way Noah did. And you need to stand on what you have been taught. And you need to stand on your faith in Jesus Christ. And then you too will be rewarded. Isn't that the message? Isn't that the encouragement? That's the encouragement. And that's the encouragement we are to get. Have you ever been made fun of for your faith? I have. So? What does that make? I don't care. Uh, have you ever heard, and I never can get this guy's name right, you ever heard Bill Maher insult religion? You know, you know how much I really care about what Bill Maher thinks? Not a whole bunch. Well, he doesn't care about what I think either, so we're equal. But the point of it is that all that is against me. But I know if I stand in the Lord, and this is true of each of us, if we stand in the Lord, we know that ultimately the victory is ours. And really, and I've mentioned this to you before, really, you look to the book of Revelation, and people say the book of Revelation is full of... Uh, is full of all kinds of a symbol, and it is full of symbols, and, and it's so confusing. But you know the book of Revelation is really very simple. One time, I heard a story of a college professor who was walking through a gymnasium with another college professor, and they were talking about last things, and they were talking about the book of Revelation, and they were discussing it. This old janitor who probably had about an eighth grade education, he was pushing a broom. He just speaks up and he says, well, I know what Revelation means. And they were just all kinds of, you know, these two scholars were shocked. And I guess they wanted to see if they could have a little fun with him. So he said, well, okay, then you tell us what the book of Revelation means. He said, it's very simple. 
we win. He had it right, did he not? We win. And, and that's really the message that Peter is teaching. Uh, he's saying here, a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As, as Noah was saved through the waters of the flood, so we are saved when we identify with Jesus Christ through the waters of baptism. Now, this is very plain. There'll be those who will tell you baptism isn't really necessary for salvation. You want to be saved, fine. Confess your faith before Jesus. Pray the believer's prayer, which, by the way, you can't find anywhere in this book. But pray the believer's prayer, and, and, and then, three, you know, maybe 30 days or so, we'll wait a week or two, and then we'll baptize you, because you're already saved once you believe that believer's prayer. Is that what it says here? It says, baptism thus now save you. What he's telling us very clearly is that I go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light when I allow my faith in Jesus to motivate me to meet the condition of baptism wherein I'm identifying with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm basically saying now through this act, I'm entering into a covenant relationship with God. And from now on, I'm going to live my life trusting in him, knowing that he will be faithful to the covenant that he has made with me. And he indeed will deliver me from sins in this life. And he will continue to deliver me when this life is over. And don't let anyone tell you baptism is a work. Baptism isn't a work. Ever been baptized? What do you do? You, stay, you know, you don't do anything. Baptism isn't a work. It's simply a condition that we meet because it's a condition that God has laid down in order to, as I mentioned, in order to enter into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of, of the Son. And all the benefits that I receive from baptism... All the benefits I receive, from, not a one of them come from anything I did. They all come from what Christ did on the cross, do they not? So that baptism is by no means a good work. And yet you'll see people will fight against this and fight against this idea. I remember years ago, I had a lady write me a letter and wanted, to come study the, wanted me to come study the Bible with her. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll come. And so I went over and I studied the Bible with her and we got to that, that passage. Somehow we got there and I said, it says here, baptism does now save you. And she looked at me and she says, well, she said, I wish I had a pair of scissors. I just cut that verse right out of the Bible. That's what she said to me. And uh, I said, well, it's there and, and, and you need to embrace it. So a couple of days later, after we had the discussion, I went to the mailbox, got a letter out of the mail, and she told me not to come by anymore. So she's the one that invited me to come. But because she, she didn't want to accept what the Word of God taught with regard to baptism, she didn't want to continue the discussion. But here, it's very plain. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
not as a removal of dirt from the body. And by the way, think about this, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Does it sound to you like he's talking about sprinkling? Clearly he's talking about immersion. Not, look at it again, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now there are two ways that this is looked at. One is the idea that this is a pledge to God. Where I'm saying once I've been baptized into Christ, I'm pledging then to live my life before God in a way that would please God. I don't go with that one. I don't think that's really what is being said here. I think appeal is probably a better idea. And and the idea here would be appeal of a good conscience before God. I'm baptized into Christ so that I might now have a good conscience before God. I now, as a baptized individual, if I'm walking in the light, I can know that I stand before God cleansed from my sins. Even though I make mistakes, very few, even though I make mistakes, I know that I stand before God free from my sins. I know that I stand before God free from condemnation. As we talked about this morning, I, I, I think Mark brought this up, Carrie's brought it up many times. You know, I grew up, I grew up believing that you could never know as a Christian whether you were saved or lost, because that's what I was taught. I remember, and this is just my own personal experience, I don't get too much into personal stuff, but it's my own personal experience. I remember as an 18 or 19 year old young man going out and knocking on doors on Saturday afternoon and coming home and sitting in front of the TV and hoping the Lord wouldn't come that night because I didn't think I was really good enough to go to heaven. That's what I was taught. And that is just as bad as teaching once saved, always saved. What the Bible teaches is what we already what we learned last week is that I'm kept by the power of God through faith. So as long as I maintain that faith, I'm kept by God's power. And how is anything then going to drag me away if I'm kept by the power of God? The only thing that can drag me away is me if I decide I'm going to turn my back on God. So we need to really look at this very carefully. But then look, look again at what he says here in the last phrase. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, he says a lot about the resurrection in this letter. He tells us our hope is because of the resurrection. And then if you look over at chapter 1, verse 21. Well, let's begin at verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times. For, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. See, I can put my faith and hope in God because Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. I'm justified, Romans 4.25. I'm justified by the resurrection of Jesus. Well, how does the resurrection of Jesus in any sense or in any way justify me? You ever think about that one? Think about that one a while. How does it justify me? Well, 
The answer is really not, di not that, that difficult when you think about it. Here is the answer. And, and I'll, I'll begin it by, by asking you, you a question. Would God raise a scoundrel from the dead? No, I don't think so. Would he raise a liar from the dead? No. So, if God raised Jesus from the dead, what does God say? God says, that's my stamp of approval on everything Jesus said and did. You can trust him absolutely. That's how the resurrection causes me to recognize my justification. Because it tells me I can put absolute confidence in everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did. Isn't that great? I kind of like that idea. By the way, you notice I'm going a little slower? Now he continues then through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and as a right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, here is something we don't talk about a whole lot. And some of you might disagree with me. That's okay. But there is a spiritual realm that you and I cannot see. It's all around us. And in that spiritual realm that's all around us, there are evil beings, authorities, powers, who want to destroy me. They're out there. They're there in that world. Remember, can't think of where it is right now. My mind is slipping. Old age will do that to you. But remember the, the, the prophet who, who told the God to open open his servant's eyes so he could see all around him and see the, the, the legions of angels that were there to protect him. Remember that story? 2 Kings 6 or 2 Samuel 6, I'm not sure what you can read them all. You'll find it there somewhere. <laughs> but the, the, the point of it is there is that spiritual realm that's out there. Now, in, in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses the term in heavenly places. And most people think, well, that term is referring to heaven. No, it's not. That term is referring to the spiritual realm that is all around us. But the good news, and, and, and here is the great news. Look at what it says here. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now what does that mean? That means that there's not an evil being in this world that I need to be afraid of as long as I'm trusted in Jesus Christ. There's not an evil being in this world that can destroy me as long as I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. That's a great message, isn't it? And this is a message that he's really powerfully giving to these people. You see, this whole, this whole section is for the purpose, of, for the purpose of, of, of encouragement. He wants to encourage these people who are suffering. And we really need to come to grips with, 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 with something that that we need to understand that one of our purposes, one of my purposes as a Christian, and one of your purposes as a Christian should be 
My purpose should be to encourage you, and your purpose should be to encourage me, to help me become more like Jesus, and, and I'm to help you become more like Jesus. But we're to be a constant encouragement to one another. Now, I know sometimes, due to my personality, I might rain on your parade. Uh, I don't want to do that. I try my best not to do it. I might do it sometimes when I do correct me. But the whole point of it is that's not what I want to do. I don't want to be raining on your parade. I don't want to be making life more miserable for you. I don't want to cause you to, to, to look and say, well, if that's what a Christian is. No, I don't want any of that stuff. What I want is to be an encouragement to you because we are to be encouraging one another. Read sometimes or read First Corinthians 14, which is dealing with the idea of miraculous gifts. And it's talking about when, when the people came together as a group, they were fighting over miraculous gifts, and as a result of that, they were creating all kinds of problems. And if you read that chapter very carefully, you'll know what you'll find over and over again. Paul said, the purpose why you come together to edify one another. And if what you're doing isn't edifying one another, quit it. Isn't that it? That's what he says. And so we need to have this idea that, the, that Peter has here is that we need to constantly be doing what we can to be an encouragement to one another. Paul said in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, I believe it's verse 28, that his purpose was that he might warn every man, that he might present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Shouldn't that be our purpose as well? I want to start with me. I did that again, didn't I? I want to start with me. I hate electronics, by the way. I want to start with me, but I also want to help others become like Jesus Christ. So as we look at this, this rather difficult text, and as we, as we try to, to, to come to grips with, with what it really means to us, when you leave this building tonight, what does this that we just read to you, what does it really mean to you? Well, one thing it should mean to you is that even though the world is evil, you will be victorious if you continue in Christ Jesus. Yeah. And never be ashamed, he says later in chapter 4, never be ashamed if you suffer as a Christian. He also says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, never allow anyone else to pull you away from the Lord. Because there are people out there in the world who are going to be telling you, hey, don't you want to come and have a good time with me like you used to? Peter says, don't listen to them. We need to be telling people, hey, don't you want to come with us and serve Jesus so you can experience the fulfillment, the spiritual fulfillment that we all have in Christ Jesus? So this indeed is a message of encouragement, and I want to encourage you. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether or not you think you're a, a stunning example of what it means to be a Christian. Are you trusting in Jesus? Because if you are, did you know Jesus has your back? That's kind of a dumb way to put it, but I think it makes the point. No, I'll just tell you something, a little story here. As you can tell, I'm not a very big man. Uh, when I was um, in high school, I was even smaller than I am now because I didn't have this stuff. So I was even smaller. And, and people, people used to like to pick on me. And, 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 and they would pick on me. Well, I had a friend, and uh, we called him Porky. His name was really William, but we called him Porky all the time. And Porky was one of these guys 
that loved to fight, and he was good at it, and he would fight anything on two feet. When I walked down the halls with Porky by my side, guess who bothered me? Nobody. Nobody. Well, why do you tell that silly story? I tell it because I have Christ walking by my side. How is anything in this world going to destroy me? They can kill this. I did it right that time. I did knock it over here. They can kill this, but they can't destroy me. And so we have that in Christ. And then the one other thing I want to leave you with is let's be an encouragement to one another. And like Peter, when we see people who are struggling with something, let's go up beside them and tell them the truths that we have learned through the Word of God that will lift their spirits and help them be everything that God would have them to be. But in order for Jesus to be on your side, you first of all have to embrace Him as Lord and Savior. You do that by believing that He is the Son of God by confessing before men, by repenting of your sins, by being immersed in water to identify with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And then after you do that, then you rise to walk in the newness of life. And if you are a Christian, you know, as you walk through this evil world, recognize that the Lord is with you. He'll strengthen you. He'll be there for you. Turn to him and you'll be victorious. And just keep walking the way the Lord wants. That's all Peter is saying. He's saying, in this world, in this evil world, no matter how evil people are to you, you do good, because that's the way Jesus lived, that's the way you're to live. If the neighbor next door kicks over your garbage can, you go pick his up. You be good, you do good, you are good. That's the way you live each and every day. If you need Jesus, why don't you come as we stand and sing?